Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You're listening to Class Dismissed, episode 248, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This episode, should a new leader in your school observe for a little bit or just hit the ground running? Stay with us. This is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each episode, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea that you can apply in your community. Our guest this episode is an expert on generative artificial intelligence, and he's going to offer us a different perspective on how AI could be used in the classroom. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by friend, chief academic officer, as well as co-host of the Class Dismissed podcast, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing today? Hey, hey, hey. I am fantastic. We are nearing the end of the second full week of the new school year, right? and I don't have a negative thing to say. I love that. <laughs> I love it. So like, everything's just peachy out there, right? It's, it's been an amazing start to the school year. Absolutely. What do you credit that to? Um, it's our second year following the modified calendar. Yeah. We've done a better job of retaining our teachers and leaders. Oh. So when that happens, you know, there's a lot more of reminders versus training um, for opening procedures and protocols. So, you know, we opened a new school this fall because we had a realignment, but it's still, you know, there's a couple of bumps with that as usual with any new building. But just overall for the district, our leaders, um, they have it together, which allows their teachers to have it together. I've been reading a few stories online about um, principals, leaders in, in school who have they've been having some trouble retaining them. Have you noticed that at all? Have you been hearing stories about that? Yes, that that is really just about as much as an issue as it is about teacher retention and not just for principals. The superintendent vacancies are a little more common right now. And I think it's tied to some of the same issues, um, burnout, high stress levels. The job has changed tremendously um, in the last 10 years. And I think that the um, the issues from leading and teaching during a pandemic play a significant role as well. Leadership is hard. Um, I've been mm -hmm. in those roles. I know you're in, in a role. Uh, my brother always says, if everybody did what they were supposed to do, we wouldn't need leaders. <laughs> so, And that is like the most simplest of solutions. <laughs> right. And, and people <laughs> need unrealistic. People need guidance, though, I guess is really yep. the point, right? Like, and structure, you, absolutely. Exactly. They look for that. And so today, um, I actually wanted to talk about a story that was written by John Quelch. Uh, he's with Harvard Business School and the University of Miami. And he wrote an article about how you don't get a second chance to make a first impression as a leader. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, this is something, as I reflect on, like, my first major leadership role, I kind of wanted to sit back and monitor before I started making decisions. But John here in this article will make some pretty good points about why you need to hit the ground running. And he gives some advice on how to do that. What's your general thought about that? Before you share anything in that article, I think it's situational. It depends on 
if the situation is on fire and you're you must come in and transform or if the situation is rather stable and all you have to do is sustain you know practices and efforts that are already in place so let's hear what he has to say and i'll share my opinion because i've been you know first time principal in a school in a district several times and each time is different right that's a good point so all right his first thing is kind of is in line with what you were just saying. He says, do the homework before your first day on the job. Do as much fact finding about the organization as you can. Visit several times. Talk to key people. You know, all these things that you can do. So when you don't walk in blind, like you're, you're not necessarily oh, learning on day one. The, the article. That's that's. I'm glad he started off with that. Um, a couple of things. My last principalship. You know what I did? Um, before I even signed my contract, I scheduled days called. Uh, coffee and chats with the principal. Nice. So everybody got five to seven minutes with me. I had a standard set of five questions that I wanted to ask, but it was also an opportunity for them to ask and just, you know, get some vibes and get a feeling. I stood on duty. I walked the halls, but you're absolutely right. Before I even went in for the interview, I did a lot of research to know, is this even a good fit for me? Oftentimes, we're so eager to get a leadership position, one for title and status, or two for the salary increase, Mm -hmm. um, and we don't know what we're stepping into. And that's the only concern I have about new leaders is really understanding the responsibility and the role that you are seeking. Right. I mean, to be a leader, you have to take on a lot of other people's problems and challenges, and that's just not on the job. That's outside of the job that will come across your your desk. Um, So step two, he says, make sure your boss has your back Um, because it's entirely possible that once you start making some changes, some subordinates, they're going to bypass you and try to go to that, to that leader. And you need to know that that boss is going to back you up. That is so true. So when you take on a position very early, one of the other things you need to research is how long your boss has been there, how close they are to exiting, whether it's retirement or just a change in venue, because new leadership may come in and have a completely different vision. So that's actually an important question to ask during your interview. What's the stability for a principal? It would be the district leadership. Um, You know, where do you see yourself in three to five years? Will you still be here? Are you you still have the desire um, to lead this ship because that that matters for my success and my support. Mm-hmm. Um, and likewise, what type of support will you provide for me as a new leader? Right. And those are fair questions, you know. Um, all right. Number three, he says, identify key talent. He says, some subordinates who tell you how lucky the organization is to have you as a leader and offer to help you succeed are often fakes, he says. Mm-hmm. He says, the people you need to impress and enlist as supporters are not wasting time welcoming you. I don't know if that's a little cynical of a, of a look, but it might be some truth to it. It's hilarious. I probably would have worded it um, differently because for me, um, I'm just not one of those people that you know runs up to the newbies. That's just not my my thing. Eventually, I'll get around to welcoming someone. It doesn't mean that I'm somebody you can count on. Mm-hmm. Nor does that mean other people who really are just genuinely friendly and love doing little gifts and happies to welcome people. It doesn't mean that they're disingenuous or you know a snake, as just <laughs> a better way to put it. For me, I'm going to look at the data. And there's all different types of data to look at. It's not just student achievement. I want to look at teacher attendance. I want to look look at discipline um, 
records for the last couple of years. I want to look at who's serving on what committee, what they contribute to the committee, who's been on the past leadership team and what they contributed, because that's how you really know um, the depth of the level of someone's commitment. But you'll never truly know until you give them a chance to show you who they are. Uh, but once they show you, mm-hmm. you better react appropriately. <laughs> I was given the advice once that you should um, identify the silent leaders. And that doesn't mean like the people with the title necessarily as your assistant principal. The worker or, bees behind the shadows. The worker bees who who have everyone else's who's a mentor to everyone else, right? Like who's that person that works, but also people come to and talk to. Uh-huh. And if you can identify those people quickly and start working with them, you you stand a better chance to succeed as a leader. That is a great point because they have a significant amount of power. They have great influence, even if they mm-hmm. don't realize that they're an influencer, they are. All right. So how about forming a leadership team? He says you need to quickly do that. What are your thoughts? Oh, immediately. And you must have have that. Every school has two leadership teams. It's your immediate administrative team. So if you have multiple assistant principals, that's one level of leadership because you can discuss some confidentiality things that you can't discuss with teachers. But then you need a leadership team or what I called when I was a principal was my school support team that has a variety of teacher leaders, different grade levels, different content areas, different years of experience because everybody brings something to the table. Mm -hmm. He says you need to signal your values. And he says, quote, this might be by cutting a frivolous expense item or replacing worn out furniture in an area of the building or making a point of talking to employees at the bottom of the pyramid who have maybe been ignored in the past, but signal those values that you have as a leader. I love that signaling your values, but I would be very careful about how you begin spending money when you're a new leader, especially in a school or in a district, because people watch that. And here's the kicker. The furniture may be worn out, but that's not going to change achievement. That's not going to impact whatever your goals are for the district. I say get through the first year, communicate that to higher ups that you're going to be looking to improve the aesthetic Um, whether that's in your main office or even in the library for students. But if that's the first thing that you're doing, instead of being out and amongst them and building those relationships and making sure what's outdated for instruction is replaced or upgraded first. Okay, good stuff. All right. And then uh, lastly, he suggests holding a town hall meeting for the entire organization or in this case school. Um, And he says, this is a must by the end of your second week. Quote, it's a chance for you to share a little bit of information about yourself and your values, why you took the job, how much you respect the contributions of your predecessor and everyone else present, all of whom made made the uh, leadership opportunity happen. So uh, what are your thoughts on that? I love that. I mean, obviously, schools have open house. It's how you design your open house. It's one of the first things that happens, sometimes before the first day of school, oftentimes within the first two or three weeks. It's a great opportunity for you to greet all visitors um, in an open general setting, and then they can disperse and visit classrooms and do all the things you do at an open house. Or you can be strategic and schedule your first parent night within the first month of school where you can make that same approach and accomplish those same things. All right. I'm going to give you um, a couple of his don'ts that you aren't supposed to do within the first, you know, few days or whatever. He says, don't accept early speaking engagements or engage in lengthy email exchanges about strategy and personnel decisions. Because, you know, when you come in new, like there's going to be that employee who comes in who wants to, Mm -hmm. you know, almost indoctrinate you with their perspective on things and wants you to make changes. So he's like, don't engage with that type of stuff, I think. 
I don't think that you should engage in that type of stuff at any time, whether right. it's the beginning, the middle, the end of the school year at all, because that's someone that's trying to catch you in a paper trail. Um, when someone has a major issue, give them the benefit to speak to you. But also, like you said earlier about communicating your vision, I always told my teachers, when you come to see me, I, there's a box. Okay? OK, and I'm always going to pass that box back to you to give you an opportunity to put two or three solutions in it. They can't even come to me with a problem if they don't show up with a few solutions to put in the box. It doesn't mean that I'm going to take your solutions and implement them, but you give me options to mull over. At the end of the day, if it's an executive decision, then it's on me as the leader. But if it's something that impacts the entire staff, it can benefit the entire school, the student body, then we're going to take those solutions, um, present them to the school leadership team. It may end up molded into something else, but giving everyone a voice is critical to successful leadership. Shared decision-making is so important. I can tell you've done this for years. Uh, the box idea is great because what happens is you have people who are just problem spotters, not problem solvers. They come in, they they tell you everything <laughs> that's wrong, but they don't give you solutions. And then those problems mm -hmm. are left on your desk and they walk out with no work. So I use the phrase that I've, I was taught recently. You know, everybody loves peace, right? Mm -hmm. I want peace, you right. like harmony. But it's more important to be a peacemaker than it is a peace lover. So what strategies, what words, what actions do you have to create the peace instead of just looking for the peace? I love it. Christina, great advice. Uh, we appreciate your perspective on this as a school leader, school administrator, uh, continuing to climb in the ranks. Are you ready for today's bright idea? Bring it on. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is here to present a transformative approach to harness the power of AI and foster wisdom in students. Dr. Tim Dacey has a doctorate in biomedical engineering, and he also did his dissertation in AI applied to neuroscience. He has a new book out titled Wisdom Factories, AI Games, and the Education of a Modern Worker. Dr. Tim Dacey, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thank you, Nick. Pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm excited to talk about this because AI has been such a hot topic in the world of education because it's kind of like, what do we do? But but first, I want to say this. I think you have this deep background in AI and you've been looking at it for a long time. And I think most of us who kind of pay attention knew that AI was coming. Like this is something that we're going to have to look out for. But I guess what really caught me off guard was how accessible it is early on. Like I thought AI was going to be something for the military and companies with deep pockets. But now, as we all know, a seventh grader can write a paper today. Yeah, that's right. And and, and really, it's caught the, the AI engineers themselves and, and those companies off guard. You know, a lot of people who speculated that these emergent behaviors that the AI companies were hoping to see from these generative AI models wouldn't really happen. Um, and so there's a lot, there really is a lot of surprise within the community. And that's, I think, why you see a lot of the experts coming out and expressing real concern about where this could go. Uh, I know that's, that's not the topic of today, but it, it is important to, to give the sense that, you know, I don't think a lot of AI engineers saw this coming. What about you personally? This. Well, you know, I think my inflection point and really when I started to look at getting out of AI development and getting into the business of helping people deal with it was back in around, I think it was 2018, when I started to see progress with AI that built AI. Um, and, and that is something that is partially um, working right now, meaning there are big chunks of an AI engineer's job that can be automated. 
Um, and when I saw that and realized, you know, these tech workers are really at the top of the income distribution and for careers, you know, people mm-hmm. come out, come out with, you know, if you come from a decent school with a computer science background, you can make six figures right away. And yet, um, their jobs are going away too. Um, and by that, I don't mean that they will, there will never be needs for AI developers. That will always be a need, I believe, but the job is going to change very, diff- very much. And th- that as, as, as much as teachers are looking at the impact to their jobs, really every other worker is thinking about how this is going to change their job in dramatic ways. I think we all do. I mean, I, I help write copy for companies on the side. Um, I feel like that's finished, right? <laughs> like <laughs> I, I can do, um, very complex video editing. And while maybe it's not there yet, I feel like give me another five years and that's probably done, right? Like they'll figure that out because photo editing is already there. Um, it, it's so weird. And like you, you were kind of indicating, uh, software developers who a year ago you would have said have one of the best jobs. They make six figures. They can work anywhere in the country from their bedroom or their office in their house. And suddenly, computers can write software code as good, maybe better, or and it's only going to continue to grow. So um, here we are, and we have to kind of figure out how do we, one, educate our students when this tool's out there, and two, educate them for the future. I mean, part of me wants to be like, we need to be educating people to do things that require you to use your hands, but there's probably more to it than that. What say you? Right. Well, the entire book really isn't about what I think the conversation is right now in education, which is about how to use AI in the classroom and how that changes the teacher roles, the student roles. Um, you know, I think that's a tactical issue. And again, every career is dealing with thinking about those changes. But the broader problem is that work outside of the education system is changing so much that it really pulls on a very different set of skills. Mm -hmm. So all of this talk through the years about 21st century skills is really now coming to a head. It's those general cognitive abilities that give you the the ability to think in a big picture, multi-perspective way about complex problems. That's really what humans will be doing. That and, and caretaking roles for other humans, of course. And so it, you know, that means we can't pretend any longer that you know 21st century skills are an add-on to what to the model we currently use. Really, I think the model has to be designed around those skills. And as the book lays out, it's a very different paradigm. Um, I go all the way back to neurology or, and, and neuroscience and, and psychology to describe how those big picture intuitive insights that people get. Um, really rely on on concepts that come from attacking multidisciplinary problems. Um, and, you know, school isn't just not designed that way. I, I draw the distinction between expertise, which is really the fundamental purpose of schooling, for at least for work-oriented purposes. Um, you know, we build people all the way through the college ranks to be more and more specialized as they, as they go through the system. Um, but in fact, the specialists are going to be AI, and the generalists will be people. That those will be the the the, the way that that AI will will mess up is because it doesn't understand the context and the big picture and the ways in which um, you know the future may be different than the past. And those are the very things that drive strategy at any organization. 
or interpersonal relationships and teamwork, how do you lead and manage? Um, you know, all of those, I think there's a tendency to call them soft skills. I think them quite hard actually, but, but, uh, it, it isn't going to come about because we lay pieces of knowledge on into students' brains brick by brick. It comes about because, uh, because people are presented with complex problems that have lots of nuances and no clear single answers. And, um, and, and that's, that change really ripples through almost everything a school does, um, from how it organizes its classrooms to how, to what its curriculum might be. Um, so I think that the changes and my concern right now is that what I hear in education at all levels is a lot of discussion and consternation about the tactical issues of student cheating or of, you know, how to use AI appropriately for various learning goals. But what I'm saying is take a look at your learning goals. Mm -hmm. That's the bigger issue. And I don't hear much conversation at all about that. Okay. So let's break this down into two parts. First, let's talk about what needs to happen just to say in K through 12 education um, Mm -hmm. with this coming down the pipe. And then we'll talk about how it can happen because they're two different things. So, and and I've heard you say a little bit of the what in in this last uh, part of the conversation, but I mean, kind of like make it easy to understand for us. How, what does K through 12 education need to do to, I guess, create wisdom factories is what you're saying, right? Right. So, so let me take, let me pick on a specific part of the curriculum, which is my bread and butter STEM. Okay. And, and if we look at what STEM still teaches, especially through junior high and, you know, and high school, it's, it's largely a whole bunch of knowledge that might someday be used if that person pursues that field. Um, and there are, there are a lot of efforts to make sure that there's a more engaged student in the process of active learning so that students will pick up these principles and, and, and be able to use them in versatile ways as opposed to as a regurgitation. So there's been a lot of improvement in teaching methods, but for the most part, most students who walk into those classrooms really don't care. The person's walking into a chemistry classroom. You can, you can probably count on a fairly small fraction of the students who are thinking of themselves as a future chemist. So engagement is already low. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they may do project-based learning, but they're about chemistry principles, right? They're not about how is chemistry applied to a big problem? When is chemistry important to apply? What are the uh, notions of which technique to use for which chemistry problem? So those come about in a very different way, and those are experientially learned um, based on multi-perspective, multidisciplinary problems. But we simply don't structure our curriculum that way. And our math instruction, for example, is largely still about solving problems for single precise answers. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what the entire progression of you know algebra and, and geometry and pre-calc, et cetera, is focused on. But when you really look at what do scientists use, um, or at, I should say what do technologists and scientists use in the workforce? They're not solving problems by hand. They're solving them with computers, and that has very, very different um, methods associated with it. Um, and they're also 
problem first environments, challenge first. You know, a lot of people have, have, have had some great success with challenge based learning environments. Um, and because those replicate the kind of, the kind of issues that a workplace has. So remembering knowledge is not the critical thing. Mm-hmm. Being able to find knowledge that's relevant and understand how and why it's relevant. And that can include methods and, 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 the, and the like. Um, and apply that quickly to a new problem du jour. That's the workplace challenge. And right. I can't see how we get to those skills with the methods that we're using, which are really about detail first. Okay. So, so if I'm hearing you right, you're saying we don't necessarily need to impart kids with just bits and pieces of information or how to solve single problems. We almost need to impart them with the vision of how to make large, impactful change with the tools of STEM or the tools of English or the tools of history. Is that kind of what that's right. So if I, so if I were to take a challenge based approach, um, it would inherently have multidisciplinary courses for a decent chunk of the curriculum. So I may be one, I may be presenting a challenge to students about the mission to Mars or something that's relevant in, in daily life. And, and then I'm picking what to teach in terms of the, you know, we still need expertise. We still need knowledge. Those, those are important to feed, uh, you know, conceptual thinking as well, as much as they are in, in, you know, declarative kinds of tasks. But the key is to make sure that, that, um, that the students develop the skill of understanding how the context drives one toward needing and using different knowledge. So the mission to Mars could have a, his, a history part of it. It could have a literature part of it. It could have a scientific part of it to do, you know, the equivalent of Apollo 13 resource management to make sure you can get back, or, you know, you can talk through physics principles. You, you could cover a lot with a multidisciplinary problem. You could talk about the psychologies of astronauts and how are they going to handle long duration mm-hmm. flight and what does that do to the human body? But the point is that students are then learning it. it they're learning knowledge in a context that helps engagement right off the bat. Um, but they're also working on problems that aren't entirely solved. And um, that may have different answers depending on different values or priorities that humans apply to the different pieces of a problem. And that's the, that's the, the work job, right? Mm-hmm. The work role for most, once you say that I can get knowledge whenever I want, and I can even get something to tell me when it's the right kind of knowledge to apply to a particular kind of problem, then the skill is really understanding how to gel all of those information, all that information into some coherent insight. I guess, how quickly do you think public education can pivot here to this new education model? I mean, you have to be kind of nimble. This is happening fast. Right. And that's my big concern. In five years, AI is going to be very different than we have even now. Right. Right. That we're now at a point where the pace at which the world changes is much, much faster than our ability to retrain. And so, you know, one would ask then, how do I know what to train for? And, I, and, and the answer is really that, you know, we're now at a point where we're going back to, in some ways, to the Renaissance philosophy of building a strong mind in general. Um, 
And those, those, those general cognitive skills are already shown to be the best indicators of strong work performance and career success anyway, right. not GPA from college. It's what, you know, if somebody takes tests of general cognitive skills and you will look at those correlations, it's much more correlated with uh, success and career in life than it is, than is uh, a particular score on, in a school exam. As so someone, how do we get to improving those qualities is really the key question. And how quickly can that be done? I have my doubts, but I feel like if if it's not done very, very quickly, and I'm concerned because the conversation isn't leading toward that kind of change, mm-hmm. then I think our students are really being hung out to dry. And, and, and I worry about their future. Me too. Um, so as somebody who has a good understanding of this, help put it in perspective for us. Is AI... What's another tool that we've had in the past 100 years or 200 years that is an equivalent in terms of a leap? I mean, is it is this greater than a calculator? Is this greater than a word processor? Not even close to those. It's, you know, I, I think there is a tendency to look at, hey, how do we deal with calculators or how do we deal with spell checkers or or the like? This is not a uh, that is not a valid comparison. In some ways, the comparison might be best to say. Um, pre-computers and post-computers. So before PCs and smartphones were available to what life, how life changed after that, Mm -hmm. that's the magnitude of change at a minimum that we should expect from AI. This is the first technology we've ever had that can make decisions. That's always been in, in a, you know, I know people don't think of ChatGP as making decisions, but it is, right? It's deciding what to write and it's deciding how to write it. Um, and that power has always been ours. And it turns out that if you look at human ability to do some of these big picture things, um, like strategize, like, for example, like predicting the future, there have been studies for years, for decades, actually, by a, a guy named Phil Tetlock at University of Pennsylvania on how well geopolitical forecasts are made by various kinds of experts. Um, you know, so the talking heads on TV, how much do they really know in terms of predicting the future? And it turns out not much. Um, they don't do very well. Uh, they're almost no better than, than chance at predicting what's going to happen, even in their area of expertise. The people who do well are the people who are multidisciplinary, who have intellectual humbleness, they have a curiosity about a lot of things, mm-hmm. and they follow sort of meta meta rules and heuristics about how to approach problems. So it, it isn't that expertise won't be needed. We're going to need the ability to understand if AI is spewing BS at us, but uh, that's not sufficient anymore. Knowing a lot about computer science, like in my field, isn't sufficient in five years to get you a really good computer science job. You're going to have to show how you can take code that AI generated and make some better soup out of it than what than what it, it put out, because you know the big picture better. I don't know if you're comfortable making predictions, but do you envision a brighter or darker future five to 10 years from now because of AI? Well... I'm quite worried, um, you know, for a lot of reasons, I think we're going into a great unknown very quickly and we have no guardrails on it. And, um, 
that can go bad in a lot of ways. And, you know, propaganda is going to be the first big issue. Mm -hmm. People will not know what to believe. That's already happening. Um, and that, that really destroys trust in institutions, in, in, in experts and, and wise folk to the point that you couldn't, you potentially don't know what's real and what's not. And that, that's a huge concern of mine because I think that can really destroy our social fabric in a lot of ways. Um, I, you know, I would say that everybody is moving too slowly. I mean, there are basic things that Congress could do now that would hugely help. Um, even if they just said, when you're being spoken to by AI, you should be told you're being spoken to by AI. Right. Like make that a law that you have to be <laughs> right? notified. That's yeah. now maybe hard to enforce, but I think the principle is important. The norms are important to establish because most will follow them. Yeah. Uh, and, that, and then I can, and so I'm, I'm quite concerned. We've never dealt with very rapid societal change very well. And the economists will say, gee, we'll be fine. More jobs will be created. Uh, you know, the Luddite, Luddites were wrong. It's, you know, we always end up with more jobs. But the disrupt, the, the interim can be really, really quite disruptive to lives. Mm -hmm. And so both job loss or change, I think, is enough. I don't think we necessarily have to lose jobs to feel out of place at work. Um, that's a huge concern. Propaganda is a huge concern. But I would say all of those things are somewhat fixable if we have better minds. Uh, if we know how to how to tell the difference, or at least have the right questions right. for understanding truth from from falsity, um, then we'll be much better off. I just don't think that that's a quality that most of the population exhibits. I want to say, if my memory calls, um, Chat GPT kind of became a household name in I think it was November or December 2022. It wasn't that That's long. Right. Um, yeah. So were you already already writing this book or was this something you turned out quickly since then? Well, it, both are true. I, I, I had been working on it since about 2020, uh, but not in earnest. I had a full-time job and, <laughs> and I was doing, this was not the purpose of my job. So, so I did it, um, on the side. And I think it took a few years for things to gel because, you know, although I had a very, uh, I guess, piercing feeling about what was wrong, I, I needed time to think about solutions. I don't like just putting out chicken little kinds of proclamations without some, some solutions. And after ChatGPT came out, it just turned out to be a, a, a break in my consulting work. So I put my head down for about two months and, and, and put it together. Well, wow. I had a lot of prior writing, but most of it wasn't used, but I had been thinking about it a while. So uh, again, the titles, wisdom factories, AI games, and the education of a modern worker. Who's your target audience here? Is it educators or is it businesses? Well, I don't, I, I speak about K-12 higher ed. I speak about work and, and things like how to interview appropriately and what kinds of skills are going to be needed in companies. So I really cover the gamut with it all being linked to um, the discussion of the, the cognitive skills that emerge from, from, from these, all these different environments. Um, educators is where I really would like to get traction. 
Um, I am not sure that's going to be the case, though, because there is a lot of inherent resistance in the educational community to people that are viewed as outside of the system. And I, and I would fairly characterize myself as being from outside the system at this point. So I'm actually getting more traction with, with HR parts of organizations. I expect actually parents might be a bigger reading community, but uh, the publicity came is just the campaign has just started uh, on the book. So uh, it'll, it's a TBD. Well, you just said something um, about how to interview properly. And that's always of interest to me. If you don't mind, is there anything like an interview question or a couple questions that you would suggest using going forward in this new world of AI? Sure. Well, you know, the key is, again, can you get at these wisdom skills? Can you get at critical thinking or personal skills, et cetera, et cetera, those 21st century skills? Can you figure out if somebody has some of that when you do a job interview? By and large, I would say you cannot. It doesn't show up well in a resume. It doesn't, you don't get great insights from recommendations who you know are kind of cherry picked opinions. And I think um, uh, even in an interview, we're fooling ourselves if we think we really understand how someone thinks. I, I used to ask certain questions to try to get at those, those skills. Um, for example, I would often care whether somebody had variety in their background. Because, you know, if I want to, if I want to be an expert at something, a lot of repetition makes sense. If I want to play piano, I need tons of repetition. If I want to be a good general purpose thinker, I need a lot of variety. Mm -hmm. So I would look at the computer science or engineering graduate who was a French major or, you know, second major, or, or they had a minor in, in literature, or they had a, uh, you know, it took a real pivot when they got a master's degree into a very different field they had undergraduate, you know, because, but, you know, those are proxies for me directly trying to measure those cognitive skills. The better way that I think to do it and the way, you know, I had in my, my work time at MIT uh, for about 10 years developed games for adult, various kinds of adult communities, everything from public health and disaster managers to you know, logistics experts. And the idea is we would want to talk to them about AI and how that might help their jobs, but we would get very unimaginative kinds of answers from people about how their jobs could be different. But when we put them in a game situation that had them perform a, a certain job function um, and had them solve those problems, we would often get very, very rich, more informed answers coming out the other end. That's interesting. Uh, when we talk to people afterward, they would they would be thrilled because it was a great training experience for them. Meanwhile, we were just trying to figure out what technology to build. So that those games, they're both they're, they're both an evaluation tool and a teaching tool at the same time, depending on their use. And there have been examples of people, Google is now, for example, using games in its hiring of computer scientists. Okay. So they, so they put a computer scientist in this fictional scenario, there's some kind of outer space, something or other, and they have to develop code to solve certain um, problems at various kinds of difficulty levels. Um, and I think having people do things that are job relevant um, is the way to understand how to hire for those skills. And that means there need to be those kind of uh, uh, tools built. That, that is becoming much, much easier. 
um, to build games. You could, in a lot of platforms, really could have non-coders build them. But the actual process of deciding, you know, what are the what are the demonstrations that this kind of position most needs to understand? You know, if I'm hiring a, a middle manager, what do I want a middle manager to be able to show in the way they think? Um, but it, the key is doing, not talking about things, but actually have people try to solve problems in an accelerated um, kind of environment like, like games can provide. Excellent. Well, uh, Dr. Tim Dacey, it is a fascinating conversation. We appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Are you ready for our pop quiz? Oh, I think so. All right. I haven't been quizzing a while. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Uh, I'll, we'll call the subject world problems. How's that? So it's this notion of these, these interdisciplinary, complex um, problems. And, and where you're feeding students a large, uh, large issue and then necking down and giving them the knowledge as needed. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Well, I mean, one, one easy answer to that is, look, we've defined these 21st century skills that, that are important. We're not teaching courses in any of those in most schools. Um, we know enough that reading and writing is important that we set that aside and know we have to teach that outside of other subjects. And I would say the same is true for 21st century skills. Where, where is the critical thinking course? What does every child deserve? Agency. Um, you know, I, I, I think most people, whether it's 50 years ago or now, would say I got out of school and most of what I was taught, I wasn't interested in. Um, and so we can say, well, that interest may build as they're taught, but uh, that's a risky way to go as opposed to getting students engaged right away. And getting students engaged means they need to have some say. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? In my experience, in the limited time I've been in the classroom, they're just overworked. Um, so change is, is going to be especially difficult for them when they're already feeling right. uh, like, like they're up against the wall. So I think that's really where AI can most help, not necessarily in the near term, not necessarily in how we teach, but does it allow routine things that teachers have to spend a lot of time doing does it free up that time so they can think ahead and think about changing? What's the best gift to give an educator? I mean, I would say the same answer, time. Right. Yeah, that, that actually is a common answer for this question. It's, and it's true, I think. Which teacher changed your life? You know, it's funny. I, 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 there, was a, there was a science teacher I had in middle school, and I don't even remember her name. But she was very influential to me because it was the first and maybe the only time in K through 12 that a teacher paid specific attention to me and talked to me about my wants and desires and really helped to give me a lot of confidence in my abilities. What's a book you've read, love, and want to recommend to our audience? Um, there's a book that's well, a little bit of a heavy lift. I would say, I, um, you know, most educators should know about the key psychology of decision-making. And that really the guru for that is Nobel laureate Daniel Kahneman. 
Ian Amos Diversky. Uh, Daniel wrote this book, Thinking Fast and Slow, probably about, I don't know, seven or eight years ago at this point. And that I think is really a great place to go to understand you know, how do people make decisions? Because we're in an era of the, of, of sharing decisions with AI. We should know how we, how we normally do them. Again, you're listening to Dr. Tim Dacey. The book is Wisdom Factories, uh, AI, Games, and the Education of a Modern Worker. Uh, Dr. Dacey, we really appreciate you uh, enlightening on this. Thank you for joining us on Classes Missed. Thanks, Nick. Great conversation. going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismiss. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class Dismissed!